0: jamoy sauce from Mexico, Japanese persimmons, and figs for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. This week, it's all about preserving fruit. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences, this is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson. Welcome to Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. Here's where we talk food and travel and a lot more at DestinationEatDrink.com, on the Destination Eat Drink YouTube channel, and right here on the Destination Eat Drink podcast. This week, we're preserving fruit with author Derek Goldstein. And trust me, it's much, much more than just jams and jellies. But first, if you like this kind of stuff, food and travel, check out what's new at DestinationEatDrink.com. Just posted a brand new story. It's about the traditional Valentine scarves of northern Portugal. Read that at DestinationEatDrink.com blog. I also just posted a brand new video. It's about my first foray into curing and preserving olives, both the good and the bad. And you can see that video by clicking on the video tab at DestinationEatDrink.com or by going to YouTube at DestinationEatDrink946. Derek Goldstein is the founding editor of Gastronomica and the author of Beyond the North Wind, Russia in History and Lore, which was named one of the best cookbooks of 2020 by Forbes.com, Esquire, and The Washington Post. Along with her co-authors, Courtney Burns and Richard Martin, Dara's latest project is a six-volume set called Preserved. The first two volumes are out now. They are about condiments and about fruit. And you can get them wherever books are sold. Last week, we talked with Dara about condiments. This week, it's fruit, including nuts dipped in thickened grape juice in Georgia, fruit scrap vinegar, candied figs, and so much more. Okay, I'm starving, so let's eat. Destination, eat, drink. Dara Goldstein, welcome back to Destination, eat, drink. Last week, we talked about condiments in your book, Preserved. This week, we're going to talk about fruits. And if people want to revisit the conversation from last week, I've got a link in the show notes. But anyway, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Thanks. It's good to be back.
0: This week, we're going to talk about volume two of your series, Preserved, and this one's all about fruits. And fruits are interesting because anyone who's ever had a fruit tree or berry bushes or maybe grown cantaloupe or something, they know the fruit comes all at once in a matter of weeks. And there you are, left with all these bushels of fruit wondering what the heck you're going to do with all of it. And that's kind of where preserving of fruits comes in, right?
1: Yeah. This is a series of six cookbooks about preserved foods. And when we were contemplating what to launch the series with, we knew we wanted to start with condiments because, as I mentioned last week, uh, salt is really the or condiment. And then we thought, what should we do next? And um, we were slightly inclined toward vegetables because that's what most people are familiar with. Uh, certainly things like sauerkraut or kimchi. But we thought, you know, people don't think about fruit quite as much in terms of preserving, except for jelly or jam, or maybe, uh, making some bottled drinks out of them. And we thought that would be something more unusual to explore for the second volume.
0: So you chose fruits and. When I when I think about fruit, I immediately remember years and years ago visiting my uncle in Virginia, and him and his wife they had this big fig tree outside of their outside of their house, and we stayed with them for a few days, and I've never eaten so many figs in my whole life. You know, it's like the, the figs were the uh. figs were ready to go, and it was every morning figs and yogurt every afternoon salad with figs (laughs) every night figs for dessert you know and it was wonderful I mean there's nothing like a fresh fig right off right off the tree but um, what do you what do you like to use figs for when we are talking on this topic of preserving
1: well like you when I was in grad school it was in the Bay Area in California and I had a fig tree in my backyard And I used to go out there and, you know, picture myself as Eve in the Garden of Eden, (laughs) going out and picking this luscious fig from the tree. It was just heaven. And of course, living in Western New England now, I think that if I were, um, a particular kind of gardener, maybe I could coax and coax a fig tree <laughs> to live if I brought it in during the winter, but no fresh figs for me that are right off the tree. So one of the things that um, is lovely to do with figs, for some reason, I'm not a huge fan of fig jam. And I I ponder this a lot because I love fresh figs, but I just don't um, love them in jam. And so in this book, we present candied figs. So these are dried figs that, uh, well, you start with fresh figs and you dip them repeatedly in a sugar syrup that has been, uh, flavored with, with some fresh lemon juice again for, a little bit of acidity. And I shouldn't have said you dip them repeatedly, you simmer them repeatedly. So this is a recipe that takes a bit of patience. It's not hard to make, but it's done over four to five days. Uh, You let the fig simmer, and then you turn off the heat, and they absorb that syrup. And then you do it again. And as they cook down, the the syrup takes on this beautiful fl- fig flavor. So not only do you end up with the candied figs, but you end up with this beautiful syrup that is really great in cocktails. Wow. Once the, yeah. Once the figs have been candied, then you dehydrate them for 36 hours or so. And then you roll them in granulated sugar, and they'll keep for a good year in the refrigerator. Though I have to say, this was one recipe that uh, did not last because we <laughs> ate them right up. We really couldn't resist them. And they're so beautiful. They're like uh, jewels. They shimmer.
0: Figs are huge here in uh, Portugal as well. One of my favorite things around this time of year is... They look like uh, stars. They take uh, they take a figs, they take like five figs, and they mash them, and then they make a star shape out of it, and they attach each fig with a blanched almond. And so it's as simple as that. It's like a cookie, but it's figs and almonds, and it is amazing. It's one of my favorite things about about the holidays, uh, especially down in in southern Portugal. You can find it, but but we get them here uh, outside of Lisbon.
1: Oh, I love that. And that's also really healthy because um, the vitamins, it's like the churchella as well, uh, which is another recipe in this book, which we were talking last week about Georgia. And chuchella is basically uh, grape juice, fresh grape juice that has been cooked down and then thickened with flour or cornmeal into a dipping coating. And walnuts or hazelnuts are repeatedly, they're strung on a string and are repeatedly dipped into this uh, very thick grape juice mixture. And so you end up with a long string of of uh, sort of candied walnuts or hazelnuts. And like the figs that you're talking about, it's really healthy. It's almost like eating the original energy bar Yes, uh, because it has so many um, vitamins in it and uh, it'll give you a lot of vim and vigor.
0: We lived in Rhode Island for many years and uh, my girlfriend, she's Italian-American. And one of the things about driving – there's a huge Italian-American population in Rhode Island, and one of the things driving around, you could always tell the Italian um, households because they'd have a uh, a cement patio with the Virgin – statue of the Virgin Mary in front, and in the back, they'd have a grapevine and a fig tree, and – the method that they would use to keep the fig tree alive, because we're in New England, of course, uh, it's not going to survive the winter, but they had this method where they would score around the roots and dig a trench, and then they could fold the tree into the trench, cover it with a little bit of dirt and leaves, and because it was you know, uh, in that environment, the tree wouldn't die, and then in the spring, they'd pop it back up. Now, these trees uh, you know, because of that, they wouldn't get as big as, you know, the trees that you'd see in the Mediterranean or here in Portugal. But still, they managed to keep fig trees alive outdoors uh, all year round and then not have to move them in and out of the house. So um, yeah. th- th- it's an interesting method. And the the name of the method escapes me right now. It's called like the, uh, um, I don't know, it has something to do with like the the... A, a dead body or something like that because it's it's in the it's in that trench oh, for scary. Yeah. <laughs> for four months out of the year or whatever it is.
1: Um, huh. I'll have to look into that. I I think that we're our elevation because we're in the hills. I think our elevation might be too high and we have a pretty severe northwest wind. Yes, but um, I will explore that.
0: You mentioned the uh, churchella from Georgia. I had. Rob Rose from the TV show Raw Travel on the on the program a couple of years ago. And he talked about that. And he was saying the Churchella is everywhere. Like he found it um, roadside stands. People were selling that that stuff. I mean, it just it seems like it's ubiquitous when you go to the country of Georgia.
1: It is. And it's really beautiful because if you're driving on some of the roads outside the city on all of really them, you'll see just an individual who has set up a makeshift shop selling these long strands. And the thing that's so beautiful about them is depending on the grape that you use, you get this wide range of colors. So the most widespread grape in Georgia is a red wine grape called Sapiravi. And it's unusual because most uh, red Wine grapes uh, have red skins, but then they're pale inside. Mm-hmm. But the Samparavi is ink black all the way through. And so you get a deep uh, black. I mean, it, it's not really black, but it's just dark. Uh, you get a deep red color. If you use a uh, a white wine grape like Mtsvane or cazzatelli, then you'll get a, a golden strand you can use a so-called amber wine, or some people call it orange wine, uh, and get something orangey. Um, In the western part of Georgia, they use mulberry juice, and that gives a very purple strand. So you have this wide range of colors. Lately, people have been doing something awful using artificial colors. Mm-hmm. So you have neon green and I don't know, bright yellow. I don't like those, but um, it it is a, a very colorful thing to see.
0: Whenever I have someone on the podcast who talks about Georgia, mentions the Republic of Georgia, it just makes me so want to go there. The culinary culture there sounds amazing. And then you've got this amazing culture of winemaking that goes back thousands and thousands of years, well before the Romans, first people ever to make wine on the planet were Georgians. And uh, I got Georgia on my mind um, because it just sounds so amazing.
1: It is. It is one of the most beautiful cultures I have ever experienced.
0: Let's talk about another recipe from your book, Preserved. Preserved. Um, talking about fruits, there's a recipe for something called hoshigaki. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And yeah. I was just, I was fascinated by the method of making this item. Could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, this is um, a really beautiful recipe and an age-old practice in Japan, among some other countries. But I, I feel as though Japan really perfected it. Uh, you take hashia persimmon, so you have to take uh those particularly because they have enough body to stand up to the technique. And this is another recipe. It seems like for the fruits, you're choosing all the recipes that take patience <laughs> <laughs> as opposed to being quickly made. But this one takes, uh, it's not that you're so active with it all the time, but it, you do have to wait for months until it's done. So you string the, you peel the persimmons and you hang them on a string. Um, and then you put them in a place where there is good ventilation that is not too hot. And you allow them to dry. but you want to encourage the sugars to come to the surface, And you also want to make sure that there aren't air pockets in there, which could cause mold. And so after the first few days um, of acclimation of these drying persimmons, you massage the persimmons gently every day for, you know, a month to six weeks. Towards the end, you don't have to massage as much. You can let them pretty much dry. Uh, until they develop this white powdery surface, which is a bloom that arises from sugars coming to the surface. If you've never done it before, it feels strange in the beginning, but then it it becomes, I don't know, I, I was um testing this recipe during the pandemic and you know, we were all in a very difficult frame of mind, I would say. And I had them hanging in the basement. And I would go down, I would have my massage session <laughs> with my Hoshigaki. It's therapy. And I yeah, I can't tell you, Brent, how therapeutic it was. It was very calming. And also, these golden orbs hanging there, it was a source of great joy. Um, my hoshigaki, I have to say it depends on the, uh, humidity level as well. And I think it was imperfect where I was and they, uh, didn't develop sufficient bloom after I think I had them, uh, for six weeks. But once I took them down, and this was a tip that I got from Courtney Burns, um, my co-author. I took them down and I put them in a uh, a plastic container and sealed them tightly. And there they, after maybe three more weeks, they developed the perfect bloom. So you have to um have faith, I think is what I would say for this <laughs> recipe, that they will eventually get there. And then they're wonderfully chewy, but not hard. And one of the things that was fun with the fruit book that we didn't really do so much with the condiment volume is that we gave, uh, I'm going to call them regular recipes, in addition to some of the basic recipes for making the actual preserved fruit. We gave recipes that uh, use the preserved fruits to make uh, dessert or, you know, something else beyond our uh, jam bars, we also uh, have a recipe for bar cookies. So for the hoshigaki, what we did is we have these preserved persimmons that are dried. And then uh, we took our recipe for preserved lemons, which are lemons that are aged in salt, and they come from Morocco particularly. Although you find them elsewhere in, in Northern Africa. And, uh, we turned that, um, those preserved lemons into a preserved lemon paste. And then we took that paste and we mixed it with butter, softened butter to get a preserved lemon butter that we stuffed the hoshigaki with yeah. and cut it in slices. And I know it sounds too elaborate, but actually once you have the preserved lemons,
0: no, it sounds it's really
1: easy to make. Yeah, it's really. In fact, now I think we have people coming for dinner tomorrow night and I still have a few of the hoshigaki in the pantry and a lot of the preserved lemon paste. I think I'm going to do that for dessert. Perfect. Thank you. <laughs> you inspired me. <laughs>
0: You know, speaking of desserts, I um, for, for years I was a gelato maker and I was thinking about this um, as I was reading your book. I thought, you know, in a way, making ice cream and making gelato is kind of a form of preserving fruit because we would have all these strawberries or blueberries from our little hobby farm and be like, well, what are we going to do with these? There's only so much jam and jelly that you can make. And so we would make Gelato out of it, and it's kind of a way, you know, because it, it'll keep for quite a long period of time in the freezer once you've made it. Um, what do you think of that idea of uh, ice cream or gelato as, or even like uh, granita as a uh, as a form of preserve?
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting way to think about it. Um, we didn't include a recipe for a, a fruit ice cream or gelato or granita simply because it it wasn't. Uh, I guess the way I would look at at it is that the ice cream is uh, taking the milk or the cream and preserving that, and then the fruit is adding flavor. Mm. So in a way, it's less about preserving the fruit than it is about preserving the milk or the cream. But when you talk about this way, yes, it makes absolute sense that it's another way to preserve the fruits of the season by adding a fruit puree to your ice cream base. So um I think that probably we could have included a recipe for that.
0: Hmm. Tell me about uh, chamoy sauce.
1: Yeah, that's another culturally really interesting one. So this is a a Mexican, uh, fruity chili sauce that um, became very, very trendy in the 1990s. And it is made basically with, um, dried chilies. And it evolved from this chamoy flavor that, um, was first used in little candies called saladitos which were popular kind of street food candy, you know, penny candy that you could get on the street. And then in the 1990s, the chefs took the idea of that flavor and turned it into a sauce that you started seeing in uh, fine dining restaurants. And Rachel Lauden, who's a really wonderful food historian lived in both Mexico and Hawaii for many years. And she became quite curious because the flavor of the chamoy sauce is similar to what she knew as crack seed snacks in Hawaii. And she traced the etymology of the word back to uh, Cantonese uh Simoy, chamoy," And what had happened is that a lot of Chinese laborers who were brought to Hawaii in the 19th century to work on the sugarcane plantations brought um, this dried fruit. So we'd been talking about the hoshigaki, which are dried persimmons, or the chortella, or the figs. So they would um, have what they called crack seed, which was often dried plums, and like the umeboshi plums, which are the Japanese style of dried plums um, that have the seeds still intact, but uh, they when they dried them, they'd be slightly cracked open. And it, again, it was like this energy snack of dried plum, or it could be persimmon or other fruits. So that migrated to Mexico and became these saladito candies and then chamoy sauce. That was drizzled on mangoes, mm. uh, again, as a street food, um, or drizzled on ice cream, which is how we like to serve it, bringing up the ice cream that you just mentioned. <laughs> so it's, um, traveled the world. And I think that that's one of the main points that we want to get across in our books is that, uh, globalization If you look at it one way, it's a horrible thing because it homogenizes everything. Mm -hmm. And you go to any country now and are sort of horrified to see golden arches or see Pepsi or whatever it is. But it's also a very beautiful thing to think about how these foods have traveled throughout the globe and morphed into different adaptations of flavors that are more suited to a new climate or a new palate, and uh, created something that is related to the original flavor, but is at the same time very dif- different. And that's one of the exciting things about um, tasting and traveling is to try and and trace the roots of so many wonderful foods in the world.
0: Yes, exactly. And I'm so glad that you mentioned Rachel Lawden because she's kind of a hero of mine. I had her on the podcast a few years ago, and I love talking to her and She introduced me to this idea, not the idea, but the language of uh, transplanted cuisine. You know, I I talked about this idea quite a bit, but I didn't have the language to really call it what it was. And she was like, Transplanted cuisine. I was like, Perfect. This is what (laughs) this is the name of what it is. And we bonded over our love of Hawaii because we lived in Hawaii briefly um, a few years ago. And it was, it was a great conversation, and I'm I'm glad that you mentioned her because uh, boy, she is a she's a smart and interesting lady, just like you.
1: Well, thank you for that compliment to both of us.
0: One thing I noticed uh, reading this book, both uh, both volumes, is that nothing goes to waste in the preserve kitchen. I call it the preserve kitchen because uh, that's the name of your book. Tell me about fruit scrap vinegar.
1: Yeah, that one is really fun. What you can do is when well, we were making a lot of different recipes, obviously, and got this accumulation of peels from fruits. And what you can do as you're cooking is just um, put them in a baggie and put them in the freezer. And once you have um, a goodly amount of these scraps, you can turn them into vinegar. And again, it's a process of just waiting and allowing microbes to do their thing. It's not that you have to be actively involved. The technique itself is is super simple. But uh, a lot of preserving is about transformation and transformation through microbial action. And it's kind of wondrous to think about these infinitesimal things that you can't even see that uh, turn into something that is um, much more than the sum of its parts. So all you have to do is um, add, you know, roughly, uh, you take about a pound of fruit scraps and you want both the peels and the cores. So things like apples, pears, quince, persimmons, uh, you allow them to ferment with honey, and then you add some raw vinegar. So you don't want the highly processed vinegar like distilled vinegar. You want um a really good brand is Bragg's in the United States. It's an apple cider vinegar. And you just let the mixture stand for five or ten days, and it'll start to ferment. And I uh, get uh, a little bit bubbly and slightly alcoholic. And then you, um well, you let the the fruit scraps and the uh, water and honey ferment for five to 10 days. And then you stir in the vinegar and you let it sit for two weeks and then you strain it and let it age for a couple of months. And you have a beautiful fruity vinegar.
0: Sounds so much better than the store-bought stuff. I guess that's the uh, yeah. I guess that's the message here, that you can do this stuff at home, and it is amazing. Um, Derek, you mentioned this is the first two volumes that we've talked about the last two weeks is part of a six-volume series of Preserved. When do we get volume three?
1: Well, we just turned in the manuscript and, and did the photo shoot for volumes three and four, which will be out next fall. And these are drinks and vegetables. So uh, those two will, I think, pair nicely. And then in 2025, and we're sort of at the stage where Oh, did we really agree to do six (laughs) volumes? (laughs) We're sort of, uh, feeling done in by so much preserving and there's no room to store this all. So I think, uh, one of the tasks this winter will be eating up a lot of this stuff. But, um, the last two volumes will be dairy, which is really, uh, we talk about more in terms of culturing. So, you know, different, uh, kinds of, um, you know, sour cream is an obvious example. Kefir and Butter. stuff like that. Yeah. Kefir, um, iron, uh, there are wonderful dairy, um, concoctions from all over the world and also grains. Oh. Grains are really wonderful when they're fermented. So oatmeal, you can ferment, you can ferment rice. We have in the drinks book, as a matter of fact, we have a fermented uh, rice beverage thats Japanese called amazaki uh, Turkish Boza there uh, uh, the list is pretty endless so that's what you have to look forward to
0: can't wait maybe you can come back on the podcast and talk about those when those books come out in the fall that would be so much fun
1: oh I would love that I'd just like to give a shout out to my co-authors sure because this was very much a, a collaborative. Effort, Courtney Burns, and Richard Martin.
0: Yes, and Richard was how I ended up getting to you. So thanks to him for uh, his assistance in uh, putting us in touch. And it's just been great talking to you about the first two volumes of your book, Dara. Um, We'll have links to it in the show notes. But if you want to give the website right now, uh, I think folks would be well Pres- uh they'll 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 be able to preserve themselves very well by uh, checking out all these great recipes.
1: Well, let me just add on that note that a lot of these recipes involve fermentation, which yields probiotics, which are really good for the gut biome. So even as you're preserving food, you're helping to preserve yourself. And I think that's a really good note to end on. Uh, you can find out more at preservebooks.com.
0: That's Dara Goldstein. Can't wait for Volumes 3 and 4. You can get the first two volumes of Preserved right now at Amazon or wherever books are sold. I've got a link in the show notes. Well, that's it for this week. Next week, we are visiting the islands of the Adriatic, Dubrovnik, Rovine, we're exploring the best of Croatia. Don't miss that. And if you enjoy Destination Eat Drink, please rate and review the podcast on your podcast app. You can also support the show by giving a few bucks, either one time or recurring, at buymeacoffee.com slash Drink. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by the Radio Misfits Podcast Network and Ed Silla. Thanks, Ed. I'm Brent Peterson. I'll see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure
1: on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network.